0: Hi, welcome back to From Aid Arbitration. Today, I'm talking about letters of demand. Uh, on Reddit, they had a, uh, a poll of what uh, the members wanted me to talk about this week. And out of the four things that they could choose from, letter of demand won. So <laughs> as boring as that sounds. So I'm going to do an episode on letter of demand. I've taken a, a few of those to arbitration before. We've been successful. But I've looked through about 50 or 60 sites today, uh, read over those. That is a lot of work, Uh, just reading sites. It's incredibly boring. But uh, I read a bunch of sites. I pulled four that I really like the language to because it's going to tell you everything that you need to look at, contractual-wise, M-document-wise, ELM-wise. It'll tell you all those things. Uh, Jeremy will put these up on formatearbitration.com, and that way... Uh, you can pull those, read them yourself. I'm going to read them here today. Like I said, I hate to read, but I'm going to read these four sites. It's the the easiest way I had to learn when I first started. Like I said, a hundred times, I read a lot of B team decisions. I I read a lot of arbitration decisions. I read a lot of arbitration decisions Uh, Because it tells me an issue, it tells me kind of the guts of it, and then it tells me the remedy. And so that was the easiest way that I had to learn, was just to read. And so I'm going to read those to you today. If you've reached out to me this past week and I haven't gotten back with you, I will. Uh, It's arbitration week, and any time I have an arbitration, I shut everything down. There's nothing more important to me than arbitration. And so uh, I've gotten back with a few of you not nearly all of you, but uh, I've had two removal arbitrations this past week. And so that's all I concentrate on. I don't concentrate on anything else. And um, because I feel like that'd be a disservice to the people that I'm trying to represent. Two very difficult arbitrations, very difficult removals. And so uh, JB was my witness. He handled both of those with the formal A. So anytime I've got him I feel like it increases my chances to win. (laughs) Uh, Very interesting arbitrations, and once I get the decision, I'll I'll talk about it, but I will not talk about it before then because I'm a big believer on karma and that I can jinx myself, and I know that's crazy, but that's how I've always been. (laughs) So uh, two very interesting arbitrations uh, as far as these removals. So as soon as I get the decisions, win or lose, I'll talk about them, what we did, uh, the way we tried to win. Uh, they're a little different, uh, a little different, but very interesting arbitrations. Look, I hate management with a passion. I just do. Uh, I cannot stand them and I despise them. And so it's always funny when we go into arbitration because we go in there like the mafia, like a bunch of gangbusters. you know, uh, I'm in a suit, j b's got his you know slacks on nice dress shirt. Uh, I had another witness, he was dressed up nice. My president, Dana Chambliss, was dressed up nice, you know. So we we walk into the district office like we own that motherfucker, you know. And so that's the way I like it. I want these motherfuckers to fear us when we walk in there. And so when we, wa- <laughs> when we walk in, I had a hearing Tuesday and Thursday. When I walked into the hearing Tuesday, labor's in there already, and they got everything uh laid out you know and the arbitrators in there and he turns around and he's like hey Corey," and i said how are you sir you've been doing okay been doing well so well i say you've been busy yeah i've been busy i said well good for you and so labor's got about five people in there they're they're teaching and so they they have a bunch of tas in there the head of labor for the district is in there they got a new advocate, he's in there, and a bunch of other people in chairs. And they're like, you know, do you mind if they sit in here? I said, I don't care how many you bring in here. <laughs> and so He says, the guy for labor says, uh, hey, we've got a room down at the end of the hall. Everybody's sitting in there, you know, as far as witnesses. And I was like, well, who are you talking about, everybody? He's like, "Management's well, management's already in there, you know, and so your witnesses can go down there and sit in there with them. I said, we don't commingle with management. And so, you know, they start laughing, you know. All of us are just sitting there just stone face. you know. I'm just sitting there looking at them. They're laughing, he stops laughing, looks at me. He's like, are you being serious? I said, I'm dead serious. I said, we don't commingle with management, brother. I said, I'm not going to have my people going back here and sitting with y'all all day long. I said, we don't commingle with management. So they're looking around. Well, I mean, I guess we could get another room. I said, that's probably wise. I said, because they're not going down there and sitting with them. So they got him another room, and so I go and I sit down. I'm getting my stuff situated, and I look up, and the arbitrator's looking at me. And, uh, you know, he's kind of grinning, and I said, how are you? He's like, you ain't changed a bit, have you? I said, no, sir, I haven't. And so that's just how I feel about them sorry bastards, man. They're dishonest, lying, thieving, stealing, cheating bastards is all they are. So I hate them. I despise them, and uh, everybody knows it, so but that was funny. I had a good time with that. I told you I had a removal I was working on for a young lady in another installation. uh, They fired her for falsifying doctor's notes. And uh, so I was assigned as the informal. JB was going to be the formal. And uh, they had her dead to rights. And um, through investigating... You know, I took that 14 days of investigating. Through investigating, started poking holes in their case, and they decided it's best not to take it to arbitration. And so they signed off. We reduced it and, and brought the young lady back. When I talk to you all the time about look at everything, look at all the dates, all the names and everything, that's one of the things that I did in this case, and it ended up, you know, kind of exposing them to things that they were doing to this young lady, that uh, falsified these doctors' notes, and one of the things was the concurrence, and I'm a I'm a stickler on concurrence of discipline sixteen eight. I'm a stickler on that because the first three words of sixteen eight are what? In no case, in no case. That's how important concurrence is. In no case, that means it doesn't matter what I do. Remember when I talked about throwing my mail off the bridge with a crack pipe in my mouth and all this stuff? I'm still covered under in no case. And so no matter, regardless what I do, I'm covered under in no case, okay? So I'm a sticker on concurrence. I want to make sure that you concurred on it, when you concurred on it, how long it took you to concur on it, uh, because there needs to be that substantive review of the information at the time, right? So I get um, I get the request for appropriate action, and there's the OIC has signed it, so I'm going to make a contention on that, that you took it out of the hands of the supervisor, the immediate supervisor. And then there's a concurring official, but there's no date on it when, when this concurring official concurred. So I put in an email. It was, it was requested on the 7th, and it was refused to sign on the 10th, okay? So we had requested on the 7th, a concurrence with no date, refused to sign on the 10th, all right? So I put in an information request, and I asked for, I want the email where this was requested, who it was requested to, and I want the email where it was signed and sent back. Does that make sense? Whoever requested this, the email from them to the request, the concurring official. And I want the email from the concurring official back to them. And I want to see when this thing was concurred on. So it was sent to the concurring official on the 10th. Now on the request for action, it said the 7th. But it was sent on the 10th at 10.50 a.m. And it was returned on the 10th at 10.58 a.m. So eight minutes. So eight minutes to have a substantive review of the information at the time. I'm going to say that's rubber stamped. Okay. And then I had a notice of removal. This took a little digging. So I had a notice of removal. Uh, The requesting official signed it on the 20th of July. It was written on the 20th of July and it was refused to sign On the 20th of July at 8.04 a.m. And it also had the concurring official's name on there. No date. So I've got a a notice of removal written on the 20th. So it says it was issued the 20th of July. It was refused to sign the 20th of July at 8.04 a.m. So when did this concurring official get it? Because their name's on it. So when did they get it? I asked for the email from the issuing manager to the concurring official to see when they put that name on there. Okay. Because if it was written on the 20th issued on the 20th refused to sign at eight Oh four AM. When did this concurring official get it? I also asked for the tax clock rings for this OIC to see when his begin tour was. Now this is where they started screwing with me with these, uh, relevancy letters and everything. And they finally redacted everything and sent it to me. And he starts at 8 a.m. Okay. So he wrote it at 7 on 720 at 8 a.m. And it was refused to sign at 804 a.m. And there's a concurring official's name on there. When did this concurring official see this? And so that's what I was asking for. Give me the email from the issuing manager to the concurring official on 720. I said, I need all emails from y'all on 720. There were none. I said, okay, well, maybe they're going to say that the supervisor sent it. I said, I need all emails from the supervisor on 720 to the concurring official. She was off that day. When did the concurring official put her name on that removal notice? It wasn't on 720. He signed it on 720. So did the concurring official... Put their name on there before 720, before it was even written, before it was even issued. That's a problem. That's a problem. And so when I took all that to them, they signed off on it. They, they didn't go forward with it. And they had her dead to rights, but they couldn't go forward with it because in no case, in no case tripped them up on that one. Okay. Hopefully that wasn't too confusing. But that's just the things that we do to try to catch them doing something, anything. Another thing quit refusing to sign discipline. It makes no sense to refuse to sign discipline. That hurts us when you do that. I've had about 20 people send me discipline. Every single one of them refused to sign. Quit refusing to sign discipline. It doesn't mean you're guilty it helps us because if you're always signing your discipline and then we look in the file and they say on a request for action that you have a letter of warning and we're like, this person's not received a letter of warning. Well, yeah, they did too. They refused to sign it. I've got all of this discipline that they've ever received. They've never refused to sign one. That's contested discipline. We can beat that in arbitration. I've got great sites on contested discipline. So tell their carriers, quit refusing to sign the discipline. It makes no sense. Tell them to quit doing that. But anyway, just a little short story for you about uh, about some things that we caught them doing up there on that one, and uh, and it turned out well for the young lady. Uh, like I said, education, 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 that's what I'm all about. That's the only thing I care about, really, is education. I believe that the country is getting educated. I believe that more and more grievances are being filed. Some reasons can't handle the volume of grievances being filed, and that's good. Put more B teams together. Put them in there. Make more backup B teams. Let's keep filing grievances on these motherfuckers, okay? Because they're lying. They're cheating. They're stealing from us. Uh, they have no issue going in arbitration and lying. And I'll tell you about that when I get the decision. Like I said, I don't want to jinx myself. But they will look at the arbitrator and lie through their damn teeth in arbitration, and we have to catch them, which we did. We did several times. But. Uh, Keep filing on these motherfuckers, okay? And uh, bury them. Bury them. I don't care if the B team has 8,000 grievances backed up. Keep filing on these son of a bitches. Look, we're gaining the upper hand on them. We're getting an educated workforce. When I talk about I'm not here to make friends, I'm here to make warriors. We are making warriors. And people are educating themselves, filing grievances like crazy, winning grievances like crazy. It's great stuff. It really is. It's great stuff. But education, 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 that is where it's at down here. That is where it's at. When I become business agent, that's priority one. Priority one is education. Nothing else matters. My people are going to be educated. Uh, JB is, is one of the brightest young minds in the country. I'd put him up against anybody, really. This guy can make a case file. He knows how to build a case file, the things to request for a case file. He is magnificent in arbitration. Uh, I have never met anybody like him. And so uh, he is not used in this region because he's a friend of mine. So the business agents office, they don't use (laughs) him. They don't use him. He tells them, hey, if y'all need me to go train, ah, that's all right. We'll use these other people. When I become business agent, I'm going to set him loose on this region. I just am. He is that powerful. I'm going to set him loose on this region like Pete Moss did me. Pete Moss set me loose on this region, man, and we handled some shit. That's the same thing I'm going to do with JB, and I'm going to find others like him and set them loose on this region to these stations where you got these assholes running the place thinking that they're above the law. I'm going to set these people loose in there, and we're going to curb some shit. But that's what I'm going to do when I become business agent. We're going to educate, educate, educate. There will never be an office that will reach out to me and say, hey, I'm not, I've not been educated. I will find those offices and I will put people in there to educate them until they know every single thing they need to know. That's just how it's going to be. I want my region to be the most educated region in the country. And I'm going to educate them till they're sick of being educated. And then I'm going to keep on educating them. All right. Uh, that's the key to me. That's the most important thing in a union is education. It just is. You've got leaders out there right now that won't bust a damn grape, that won't bust a grape. You've got people around this country wanting a national rally. Uh, the Postal Service is on the run right now. You've got legislators, congressmen, senators all in their ass right now about heat, about the working conditions. Y'all seen the stuff down there in Texas? Those legislators have gotten involved, and people are like, well, they can't do anything. We've got to get it through collective bargaining. Bullshit. Bullshit. You get Congress involved, legislators involved, they're going to make them make change. They're going to make them make change. I promise you that. Senators are getting involved, and we didn't got nobody to bust a damn grape the prayer right now as far as calling us to get out into the streets and rally. They want... Matter of fact, somebody told me that one of the leaders said rallies don't do anything. You're a fucking idiot if you're saying rallies don't do anything. That's some dumbass shit right there, man. You put people in the streets about working conditions and the news get a hold of that and lawmakers get out there with us. Congressmen, senators, legislators get out there with us and start raising hell. You don't think that's going to make a difference? You're out of your fucking mind. How in the fuck did you get to be a part of a union, uh, or let alone a leadership part of this union? You don't know the, the power of the rally. Mercy. But we need to be in the streets. We got people all across this country wanting to get in the streets. Somebody out there needs to organize us and do that. You know, we, we got great minds, Mac, Julian, James Henry, those that can get in front of people and and shake some shit up. That's what we need out there in the streets right now. That's what we need in front of us, leading us, because we got two up the top. They ain't going to bust a damn grape. Couldn't couldn't beat their way out of a fucking wet paper bag. Uh, have zero, zero pulse rate. Zero pulse rate. And they damn sure don't have the pulse of the city letter carrier damn sure don't have the pulse of the city letter carrier. I saw one of them speaking the other day at a rally, uh, you know, and and people were having to say, speak up, we can't hear you. That's complete embarrassment. Complete embarrassment. We don't have any more energy than that. It's embarrassing. You, You know, you got to tell those people in Chicago when you stand there, hey, look, this is ground zero, This is where it's going to start. This is where it's going to begin. It's you that are out here making a difference for those around the country because you are the ones who are first. And you are ground zero as far as this movement to change the working conditions of the city letter carrier craft. And it's you, you are the ones that we will look back on and say, it's those in Chicago that said enough is enough with the city letter carrier getting stole from Beaten, maimed, shot. It's those in Chicago that stood up and said, enough is enough. We are here to make change. And we've got leaders that people are having to tell them, speak up, we can't hear you, on one of the more critical times in our union's life. Where are we, leaders? Where are we, leaders? Put somebody in front of us that knows how to make a rally, knows how to build a rally, and knows what it means to rally. Don't put somebody up there that you've got to go stand up there and he's speaking. Raising his hands up. What in the fuck are you saying? Speak up, man. You're talking to the, to, to the country about the city letter carrier. Have some passion about it, man. You're the fucking leader. Have some passion about the city letter care craft, about those that are being shot in the streets. Tell those in Chicago, you are ground zero. You are here and you are the ones that are making the difference for the rest of us in the country. And it's not going to stop here. It starts here. It will not stop here because I will take it upon myself to rally this country and put the city letter carriers in the streets to let the country know, to let the public know enough is enough with the working conditions that the city letter carrier has to work with as far as the heat, the crime, all these things. And let the public know, man, it's really that damn simple. It's really that simple. But. We need new leaders. Uh, Ours are failing. And so we'll do that this next election, get some new leaders. But like I said, you got people up there that I would set loose on it, man. Mac Julian, James Henry, Manny Peralta, those guys, baby. (laughs) I would unleash them, man. I would unleash them and let them have at it. But God dang. Anyway. Letters of demand. I've got four sites I'm going to read to you, uh, it, uh, and I hate doing it. I know people say, you know, don't, you know, don't worry about reading. I hate it. I hate it. My tongue gets tired. I have to drink like 18 quarts of water. But these four sites, it may not be what you're dealing with, but the language in them is perfect for what you will deal with, okay? It's going to tell you the contractual language that you're going to need when you're, de- when you're dealing with a letter of demand, all right? Uh, it's going to tell you what an arbitrator thinks. It's got some, some high-level language in it, okay, and, and we'll deal with that. And so uh, I'm just going to read them. It, it's To me, it's the best way to learn. It just is. It's the best way to learn because it's going to tell you the provisions that you need, issue statements that you're going to need, remedies that you're going to seek. It's the best way for new stewards to learn is arbitration sites, And B-team decisions, like I said, I used to get uh, boxes and boxes and boxes of them and just read. I mean, I'd have stacks in my den of B-team decisions, discipline, uh, contract, Article 8, Article 41, optic, all these things. And I just read them until I memorized them, okay? And so I'm going to read these four, and then I'm going to be done next week. I don't know when JB's going to come in. He's going to do um, sick leave dependent care. He's very good at that. And so I'll have him come in and do that. I don't know if he's going to be next week. If he's not, uh, then I'll do something, whatever set was second on that poll. <laughs> but um, another thing is, you know, when you talk about education, one of the things that I learned from most when I was the Formal-A, I didn't even know about it until I was a Formal-A rep, and this is way back now, way back in 2009, 08, 2008, 2009, uh, one of the things that I learned most from was the little newsletter called The Activist. Uh, it was amazing. And I had all those copies, and I would read those to death. So Anybody knew about The Activist knows uh, how powerful that was, how rich that was as far as information, M documents and stuff. Had great topics, The Activist. If I'm the president or whoever's up there that handles that, I want to say, hey, look, Get the activists out there to the pub, get to our, to our members. Get the activists out there to those fighters, to the warriors. That's another weapon for them. I want all the weapons available when I'm on the battlefield. I want every weapon available to me. And the activist is a critical weapon to us that we don't do anymore. Uh, if, I, if they're listening up there, which I think they are, if, I, if, if, if you're listening, give us the activists back. Do me a favor and do that you know, Uh, and it will let me know that you appreciate the podcast, even though you can't say it. It will let me know that you appreciate the podcast if you get the activists back back out there and in circulation. All right. So do that for us down here on the workroom floor for us fighters at the informal and formal. It's great stuff in there. So I ask you to do that. See if you will. I hope you do. All right, let's get to these letters of demands. I'm going to read these decisions, like I said, and then I'm going to be done with it. A lot of reading. Ugh, just look at that. That's terrible. But here we go. Uh, This first one is C20126. Now, write these things down. Write this contractual language down. You don't have to write all the language, but, you know, when it talks about Article 28, when it talks about the ELM, write those down. That's a quick reference for you that you have in your hand you know, when you're ready to fight these things. And I know there are several that reached out this week talking about they've got letter demands, and I asked them to hang on. Hang on. I'm going to read these to you, and it's going to help you. So this first one is C20126. 20126, okay? And it's uh, arbitrator William Eaton. It's from 1999. In the award, the Postal Service did not meet its obligation under Article 28, of the national agreement when it issued a letter of demand to the agreement on March 27th, 1997. The letter of demand is therefore rescinded and neither the postal service nor the agreement shall pursue any further claim in regard to this matter. we like that statement of the case. The issue to be determined is whether management met its obligation under article 28 of the national agreement when it issued a letter of demand to the agreement on March 27, 1997. And if not, what the remedy shall be hearing was held at las vegas nevada on september 17th of 1999 at which time both parties were represented by advocates of their choosing the grievance was present throughout the hearing and testified on our own behalf following presentation of evidence it was agreed that the matter would be submitted upon simultaneous filling filing a post-hearing brief which was completed on october 26th 1999 the agreement was served a letter of demand in the amount of $5,677.84 on March 27, 1999, demanding payment due to overpayment of salary. The attached invoice stating the amount due also indicated that the claim was a payroll-related debt and that it was assessed per Memorandum of Understanding, NELC dated June 28, 1995, salary overpayment. There was no further explanation of the claim and no further documentation was presented prior to step three of the grievance procedure. The union contends that documentation furnished does not satisfy the requirement of article 28 that the employee be informed of the reasons therefore when a letter of demand was issued. Now that's critical and a lot of arbitrators will rule on that when you talk about reasons therefore <clears throat> and we'll explain that in a second. But it always has to tell me in detail what it's for. Okay. Management will write up their own letter of demands. Most letter of demands come from Egan, okay? Egan Accounting Services. Local management will write up their own. If you have a vehicle accident or you have, you know, you damage something in the postal service or in the building or whatever, they'll issue their own letter of demands and require you to pay that or expect you to. So listen to that language. It says that the employee be informed of the reasons, therefor when a letter of demand is issued. The Postal Service contends that the letter of demand and its attachments satisfy the requirement of Article 28. Contractual Provisions Article 28, Employer Claims The parties agree that continued public confidence in the Postal Service requires the proper care and handling of the USPS property, postal funds, and the mail's. In advance of any money demand upon an employee for any reason, the employee must be informed in writing and the demand must include the reasons therefor. Memorandum of understanding between the United States Postal Service and the National Association of Letter Carriers dated 62895. Regarding promotion pay, number 6. Following the application of the new rules, each pay period within the reconstructed salary history will be compared with a corresponding pay period in the actual salary history. All periods in which the employee is overpaid will be offset by those periods, if any, that the employee was underpaid. The employee will receive any positive balance in the form of a lump sum payment in a subsequent pay period. Any negative balance will be handled in accordance with the collective procedures for the erroneous payment of pay. Arguments Union, the issue at hand is a relatively simple one to decide. Now, this is, our, this is our position. Did management fulfill their obligation on Article 28 when it issued the letter of demand to the grievance? The answer to that question is a clear and unequivocal no. The union repeatedly requested proof of the overpayment, how the service came up with the amount that was being demanded, what exact dates the overpayments occurred, and an explanation or reason of why there was an overpayment. At no point during step one, two, or prior to the grievance being appealed to step three of the agreement's process did the service provide documentation which explained the supposed overpayment. The service finally sent a payroll history journal to the agreement, date unknown, which management contends contained the documentation that proved the agreement had been overpaid from pay period 9225 through 9511. The agreement testified that the documentation provided did not explain how she was overpaid. Nor did she understand how the data proved that she owed money, or exactly how management came up with a figure of $5,677.84. She also testified that the amount of $5,677.84 was not listed on the Pay History Journal. Ms. Rose Fernandez, USPS, testified that she prepared a step calculator, and employee profile in order to clarify what pay grade the employee was originally paid, and during what pay period, and what pay she actually should have been paid to be in compliance with all provisions of the CBA and postal regulations. Ms. Hernandez had not completed her new calculation, so even though the new evidence was improper, management still could not explain how the amount owed was calculated or exactly when the overpayments occurred. Nor could they prove that the amount supposedly owed equaled $5,677.84. The incredible irony is that Miss Hernandez stated more than once that the payroll history journal was incorrect or contained errors, but she used the erroneous journal to make the new calculations of the supposed overpayments. The union objected to the new attempt by management to finally bring forth the reasons and amount of supposed overpayment at the hearing, since both parties are obligated to have entered all relevant facts, arguments, and documentation prior to the hearing." The union would draw the arbitrator's attention to arbitration decisions that support the union's objections. And this is when we turn in sites and arbitration. It's for persuasive value. Uh, JB does a very good job of putting sites in his contentions. I know a lot of people say, don't do that. I disagree with that. I disagree with that. Uh, the more sites we can get in, the better. Because when we're in training, they say, don't turn in more than five or six. You know, and that way don't overburden the arbitrator with all this extra work. JB puts a lot of sites in his contentions that support his position, and so that's what they do in arbitration. I turn in sites for persuasive value. Here's what this arbitrator said, Mr. Arbitrator, and it goes along with the case you're hearing here today, and so this is what this one is. It's Arbitrator Benjamin Aaron. It states, it is now well settled that parties to an arbitration under a national agreement between the Postal Service and and the signatory union are barred from introducing evidence or arguments not presented at preceding steps of the grievance procedure and that this principle must be strictly enforced. In case number there, Arbitrator Menthol states, the difficulty here is the lateness of this argument. Article 15 describes in great detail what is expected of the parties in the grievance procedure. Its reliance on this contract provision did not surface until the arbitration hearing itself it would be inappropriate to consider this belated Article 13 claim. On Article 28 of the CBA, the employee must be informed in writing and the demand must include the reasons therefor. Webster's New Collegiate Dictionary defines reason as computation, calculate, think, a statement offered in explanation or justification, a rational ground or motive sufficient ground or explanation or a lot of logical defense something that supports a conclusion or explains a fact behind his client's actions the thing that makes some fact intelligible so they're they're breaking down the word for the arbitrator which we do a lot even though they understand it we'd like to break down words the statement made by postmaster rucker in the letter to man the amount of five thousand six hundred seventy seven dollars and eighty four cents was established to collect for an overpayment of salary is a grossly inadequate explanation or reason as to why the agreement owes money to the USPS. Now, listen to that, okay, because this is what you're going to get on a lot of your letter of demands. The amount of $5,677.84 was established to collect for an overpayment of salary. Now, a lot of y'all will see that, and the arbitrator is fixing to kill that right here. In support of the union's contention that the service has not lived up to the burden placed upon them under Article 20 of the CBA, the union cites a recent arbitration decision by arbitrator Parent dated April 10th of 1999. This is what it states. A reasonable person would expect that when the employer advises an employee that he, she, has been overpaid a certain amount, some sort of explanation or calculations would be provided to substantiate the claim, and not simply a reason such as you have been overpaid in the amount of. Therefore, please advise us how you plan to repay this amount, which in effect is what was provided the grievance in the instant case. Our overpayment may be the reason for the request for reimbursement, but in this arbitrator's opinion, absent some sort of simple explanation as to how the claimant arrived at the requested reimbursement figure, the intent of the language of Article 28 has not been satisfied. At the hearing, the employer's advocate himself admitted with refreshing candor that the computations show the payroll journal were beyond his comprehension. Then he continues, This case resembles the instant case before this arbitrator to such a great extent that it is astonishing. The service in the above cited case also contended the grievance was overpaid and provided an indecipherable payroll history journal that did not meet the provisions required under Article 28. At the arbitration hearing, the grievant, the union, management's expert witness, Miss Fernandez, and the arbitrator all attempted to ascertain the reasons and decipher the documentation that supposedly delineates the amount owed and noted in the letter of demand but to no avail. Miss Fernandez became so frustrated and confused due to the indecipherable documentation provided in the payroll history journal that she stated clearly that it is not her job to explain the payroll journal (laughs) and that she could not explain exactly how the grievance was overpaid. How can the service expect the grievance to understand how she may not have been overpaid, but their own witness can't? The service's witness stated that the payroll journal was incorrect and that the calculation stating that she should have been paid at level 6B had to be incorrect because the grievance would have attained level 5C by that time frame. She also concurred that the grievance would be owed money due to this other pay anomaly created since the regulations provide that an employee cannot be paid less than at level 6 than they would have been paid if they had remained as a level 5 employee. At this point in the testimony, the arbitrator asked why the underpayment was not considered and when the grievance could expect to be paid for the underpayment. The services advocate stated that this other pay anomaly was somehow different and the agreement would be paid eventually. Once again, management's explanations and contentions are grossly, grossly inadequate to meet the provisions required on Article 28. The union reviewed many arbitration decisions in order to ensure that our contention that Article 28 was in fact violated in the instant case would ring true. The issue that surfaces time and again is whether or not management adequately explained and, provide, and proved that the employee owed money to the service. If management proved the overpayment prior to the arbitration hearing, the grievance was denied, and if they did not prove the overpayment, the grievance was sustained. The union requests that the grievance be sustained and the letter of demand be found null and void. The union further requests that the arbitrator rule that the service cannot reissue another letter of demand upon the grievance since their obligation was to adequately explain the supposed overpayment at the time the letter was issued over two and a half years ago. To issue another letter of demand would allow the service to relitigate an issue that would have already been decided by this arbitrator. Now here's the Postal Service. The NELC condemns the grievance should be granted because management did not explain to the grievance the reasons for the letter of demand issued on March 27, 1997, as provided under Article 28 of the Collective Bargaining Agreement. This letter of demand was issued to the grievance as the result of a Memorandum of Understanding signed by the parties at the national level in 1995, which was widely publicized. The grievance was overpaid when she changed levels as a result of the pay anomaly that resulted from the 1984 contract negotiations, adding new steps with the longer waiting to the existing pay schedule. As a result of calculations pursuant to the MOU procedures, the grievance salary history was computed to show a negative balance of $5,677.84. Article 28 simply states the employee must be informed in writing and the demand must include the reasons. The very first paragraph of the letter of demand states, The attached invoice, dated March 5, 1997, in the amount of $5,677.94, was established to collect for an overpayment of salary. The actual invoice also states payroll-related debt and per memorandum of understanding, NELC dated June 28, 1995, salary overpayment. The union filed their undated step one grievance, stating, Grievance received certified letter in the amount of $5,675.94 with the invoice number there for alleged overpayment of salary from the USPS. The grievance and the NELC were supplied documentation of her payroll journal. The journal documents what was paid as well as the amounts that should have been paid for the affected pay periods and various pay levels. There has been no demonstration that the union has analyzed the provided information. They haven't denied that she was overpaid. Their argument is that she shouldn't have to pay it back. Pay step calculations were also provided to the Step 3 designee representing the grievant. Additionally, documentation of the settlements with the NLC... The mail handlers and the APW was provided to demonstrate the difference in the agreements and the reason the overpayment of salary is being sought from the grievant. The NELC did not agree to waive the negative balances of overpayment for their members as the APW and mail handlers did. They agreed that any negative balance will be handled in accordance with the collection procedures for the erroneous payment. This is the same past practice management has used nationally and locally in issuing these letter of demands for salary overpayments. There is no specific form required to use for letters of demand. Thus, the letter of demand was issued correctly. The Postal Service followed the appropriate procedures to collect this overpayment as per the National Memorandum of Understanding. An award by arbitrator Skelton is exactly on point. In that case, the agreement was overpaid, was provided documentation, but continued to claim he could not understand why he was overpaid. Arbitrator Skelton also cites the difference between the NELC agreement, where they did not waive the collection overpayments, and the APW, which did. The Postal Service position is that an arbitrator does not have the authority to forgive the grievance debt were paid incorrectly. If the arbitrator were to decide this letter was procedurally defective, Management cannot be barred from issuing a letter of demand according to any specifics identified by the arbitrator as necessary. This is a contract case that requires the union to demonstrate through clear and convincing probative evidence that management violated the national agreement at Article 28. The union must prove a requirement exists to state more than was stated in the letter of demand. If the union wants specific language in the letter of demand, they must negotiate that language not tried to obtain it in the rights-based arbitration. They have failed to demonstrate that any violation of Article 28 has occurred and respectfully requested that the union's grievance be denied and dismissed in its entirety. Analysis. Article 28 requires that the reasons therefore be stated in writing to an employee when a letter of demand is issued. It is true, as the Postal Service argues, that there are no specific requirements as to the form in which The reasons must be stated. Nevertheless, both the definition of the word reason quoted in the union's brief and the Postal Service cases presented with the union's brief indicate that some articulate and understandable explanation is required. At the arbitration hearing, the grievant presented brief testimony to the effect that she initially was given no documentation whatsoever, and then when some documentation was finally presented at Step 3, she could not understand it and that no one ever explained to her what the basis of the claim was. Now make sure that when you're dealing with a letter of demand, have the supervisor explain the letter of demand to you, because they don't have a clue what's going on. Have the station manager explain the letter of demand to you, and make notes that neither one could tell with any articulation why the grievance received the letter of demand. They're just going to read it to you, okay? Well, it says here an overpayment. I'm going to read that again. However, it became clear during the course of her testimony that the matter cannot be and that when some documentation was finally presented at step three, she could not understand it and that no one ever explained to her what the basis of the claim was. Okay, so make sure that we're getting that on the record. Postal Service presented testimony by compensation specialist Rose Fernandez to counter the grievance contentions. However, it became clear during the course of her testimony that the matter could not be clarified at that time, and it was at that point that agreement was reached to submit the case upon written briefs. The union is correct in its contention that new evidence is not admissible at arbitration level for the reasons set forth in the arbitration award cited in the union's brief, and in many similar Postal Service decisions as well for that matter. The essential problem, however, is that even if new testimony and documentary evidence offered at the hearing and in the Postal Service post-hearing brief were to be considered, the facts remain analogous to those described in the decision of Arbitrator Guy M. Parent quoted in the union's brief. That is, there has been no clearly articulated statement by the Postal Service to the agreement in writing or otherwise as to precisely what the basis of the claim is. Even at the hearing, most of the discussion was involved with the attempting to understand details of accounting that should have been digested and consolidated long before and were such that no clear picture of the Postal Service claim was discernible in any event. In addition to citation of arbitrator parents' case in its brief, the union has submitted several other Postal Service awards, two of which present analogous circumstances – A case decided by Arbitrator Walter Powell on November 6, 1990, and a case decided by Arbitrator Nicholas Zumas on July 16, 1990. Arbitrator Powell ordered that a letter of demand be rescinded for the reason that procedural requirements set forth in administrative manuals had not been met in the issuance of the letter of demand. In the present dispute, it is simply the requirements of Article 28, not requirements of administrative manuals, which have not been met. Arbitrator Zumas found that the letter demand for health benefit premiums was improper for the reason that the service had failed to demonstrate a loss. In the present dispute, the Postal Service has similarly failed to demonstrate precisely when and by how much the agreement was allegedly overpaid. The case cited by the Postal Service, by contrast, was a case in which the arbitrator concluded that management had followed the appropriate procedures under the 1995 Pay Anomaly Memorandum, when it calculated the overpayment to the agreement therein so that the letter of demand was appropriate. The arbitrator found that in that case, management offered the documentation that explains precisely the amount of money owed. The same can hardly be said for management's presentation in the instant dispute. These findings are not based, as the Postal Service seems to imply, on a theory of hardship, mitigation, or intent to forgive the grievance debt. Rather, they are based squarely on failure of the Postal Service to comply with the provisions of Article 28, requiring that reasons, therefore, be given to substantiate a letter of demand. All the Postal Service offered in the letter of demand was a conclusory statement that the agreement had been overpaid with no supporting rationale whatsoever. It is rather surprising to find the Postal Service arguing that, should a defect in the issuance of the letter of demand be found, the appropriate remedy would be to allow the Postal Service to go back and reissue the letter of demand. This is analogous to an argument that, there have been having been a procedural deficiency in assessing discipline, so as to negate the discipline, the personal, Postal Service could go back and do it all over again. Clearly, such an argument undercuts the very purpose of the grievance arbitration procedure set forth in the National Agreement. As a final note, it must be observed that the award sustaining the grievance must also provide that the grievance cannot pursue any underpayment which may have occurred in the period in dispute. And so he ruled uh, in our favor. So that's got great language and great other sites for you uh, when it's dealing with letters of demand. Uh, I love that site there. That's a great site Uh, if you're taking one to arbitration because it's got other sites that he references in there that are also great sites. Here's one from Arbitrator Snow, and it's C511. C511. And I'm just going to read his uh, award, because it's long. And this is what somebody was dealing with uh, this week that contacted me about management deducting, uh, letter demands uh, before the grievance was settled that we filed a grievance management started deducting those uh, alleged losses before the grievance was settled. Arbitrator Snow starts talking about that here. It says analysis making deductions prior to ruling on the request for waiver. The party's collective bargaining agreement has addressed the issue of overcompensation. In particular, it provides guidelines regarding whether the employer shall withhold monies prior to a determination on such a claim. Article 28 of the party's collective bargaining agreement states that in advance of any money demand upon an employee for any reason, the employee must be informed in writing and the demand must include the reasons therefor. Remember that language I just read from the prior one? Article 28 applies to any and all claims by the employer against an employee for any reason. Now, that's going to cover everything you're talking about. And I've got one here later about a vehicle accident. I'll read that again. Article 28 applies to any and all claims by the employer against an employee for any reason. The contractual provision clearly includes claims by the employer against an employee for overcompensation. Section 4 of Article 28 states, A. If the employee grieves a demand in the amount of more than $200, which is made pursuant to the Sections 1, 2, or 3, the employer agrees to delay collection of the monies demanded until disposition of the grievance has been had either by settlement with a union or through the grievance arbitration procedure. I'll read that again because somebody specifically asked me about this earlier. The contractual provision clearly includes claims by the employer against the employee for overcompensation. Section 4 of Article 28 states, A. If the employee grieves a demand in the amount of more than $200 which is made pursuant to Sections 1, 2, or 3, the employer agrees to delay collection of the monies demanded until disposition of the grievance has been had either by settlement with the union or through the grievance arbitration procedure. So there you have it. Section 4 of Article 28 has been limited to claims raised under Section 1, shortages and fixed credits, or Section 2, loss of or damage of the mails, and Section 3, damage to the employer's property and vehicles. It, however, is consistent with reasonable principles of contract interpretation to apply Section 4 to the preamble of the article as well so that it would apply to claims arising for any reason. That construction of the contractual provisions would make Section 4 applicable to overcompensation claims. The parties have enunciated their intent in Section 4 to require the employer, in cases involving significant claims of $200 or more, to delay collecting the claim until after the grievance has had an opportunity to seek adjudication of the claim. For claims arising under the first paragraph of Article 28, the parties have failed expressly to set forth their intent regarding when the employer will be permitted to recover such claims pending waiver procedures. It is clear, however, that the parties expressly have set forth their intent in Section 4 with regard to claims arising under Section 1, 2, or 3 of the Article 28. It is clear that they have intended for the entire article to be construed consistently. Consequently, limitations placed on claims arising under Section 1, 2, or 3 of Article 28 should also be applied to claims arising under the first paragraph or preamble of that article. This is reasonable interpretation of the party's agreement means that the employer is not permitted to collect claims of overpayment prior to determination of employee's request for waiver. As the Restatement 2nd of Contracts has stated, words and other conduct are interpreted in the light of all the circumstances, and if the principal purpose of the parties is ascertainable, it is given great weight. Now, hes that's high-level shit he's doing right there. He's going outside the collective bargaining agreement. In light of the principal purpose of the parties to be found in sections 1, 2, and 3, it is reasonable to conclude that the parties intended to apply the procedures set forth in section 4 to the preamble of, to articles 28, and such an interpretation permits article 28 to be understood in a harmonious and consistent way. B. The grievance request for a waiver. Article 19 of the Party's Collective Bargaining Agreement states, "...those parts of all handbooks, manuals, and published regulations of the Postal Service that directly relate to wages, hours, or working conditions, as they apply to employees covered by this agreement, shall contain nothing that conflicts with this agreement, and shall be continued in the right to make changes that are not inconsistent with the agreement and that are fair, reasonable, and equitable." Article 19 of the parties agreement incorporates various manuals into the parties collective bargaining agreement. Among provisions incorporated in the agreement by Article 19 is section 437.6.61a, b, and c of the employee labor relations manual. All right, y'all get that? Section 437.6.61a, b, and c of the employer labor relations manual section 437.6 states that the employer will waive claims by the employer for overcompensation if certain conditions have been met the provision states 437.6 action by the postal data center pdc point six one the pdc will waive the claim if it can determine from a review of the file that all of the following conditions are met a The overpayment occurred through administrative error of the USPS. Excluded from consideration for waiver of collections are overpayments resulting from errors in timekeeping, key punching, machine processing of time cards or time credit coding, and any type of graphical errors that are adjusted routinely in process of current operations. B. Everyone having an interest in obtaining a waiver acted reasonably under the circumstances without any indication of fraud, misrepresentation, fault, or lack of good faith. C. Collection of the claim would be against equity and good conscience and will not be in the best interest of the USPS. It is a requirement of 436.6.61C that are most difficult to determine. When collection of a claim would be against equity and good conscience or would not be in the best interest and the employer cannot always be determined with scientific precision. The parties, however, have provided some insight into the meaning of this requirement in an earlier version of the Employer and Labor Relations Manual, which incorporated public law 90-616. Section 755.993B stated, told y'all this is some high level shit he's getting into. B, collection action under the claim would be against equity and good conscience and not in the best interest of the United States. Generally, these conditions will be met by finding that the erroneous payment of pay occurred through administrative error and that there is no indication of fraud, misrepresentation, fault, or lack of good faith on the part of the employee, former employee, or any other person having an interest in obtaining a waiver of the claim. The grievance should have received a waiver of this claim in this case. The overpayment was the clear result of an administrative error by the employer. The grievance filed for a change in position from a level 6 clerk to a level 5 Nixie distribution clerk. The employee transferred the grievance but failed to arrange this corresponding salary adjustment. If fault must be assigned with regard to the resulting two and a half years of overcompensation, it must fall on the employer. The Grievant acted reasonably under the circumstances. There was no indication of any intent to defraud, misrepresent, to act with fault, or any showing of a lack of good faith. The Grievant believed he could remain a Level 6 worker until he received a Form 50 from the employer indicating that he had been changed to Level 5. His understanding was not unreasonable in the light of the letter dated July 24, 1979 to the Grievant from Miss Wellman. Ms. Wellman indicated that a Form 50 should be cut to change the grievance from a Level 6 machine to a Level 5 distribution clerk. There was no evidence showing the grievance understood that by changing jobs, he was changing pay levels. Evidence submitted at the hearing established that the grievance is untutored and not all keen regarding data contained in his pay stubs. There simply was no showing of any action on his part that constituted unreasonableness or bad faith. All of this is great language for y'all. Every bit of this is great language when talking about bad faith, unreasonable, uh, defraud, attempt to defraud, misrepresent. All of that is, is good for us, okay, when we're arguing letters of demands. The agreement testified that eventually he discovered the error in his salary and immediately reported that fact to his supervisor. He believed he had done all that he could do to rectify the situation. He relied on his supervisor to correct the error. The amount of overcompensation totaled approximately $25 per pay period. After taxes and other various deductions, it was not a sufficient amount to indicate to this particular grievance that he was being overcompensated. In light of his disinclination to compute his wages with any refinement, nor is it reasonable to expect the grievance to do more than that average, prudent person in reviewing his wage stubs in order to be certain that they were reasonably accurate. The grievance request for a waiver of the employee's overcompensation claim in this case has been made in good conscience and is in the best interest of the employer not to pursue the collection of the overpayment. Under Section 755.9.93B of the earlier Postal Service Manual, such a claim must have been the result of administrative error and the grievant must have acted in good faith and without fraud and reasonably in order for the claim by the employer not to be in good conscience or in the best interest of the Postal Service. The grievance overpayment clearly resulted from an administrative error. He has acted reasonably and has done so in good faith and without fraud. Consequently, it is reasonable to conclude that the employer's claim for overpayment has not been made in good conscience and is not in the best interest of the employer. Accordingly, it was not reasonable to deny the grievance request for a raver. This conclusion is consistent with the interpretation of Article 19 and Section 437.661 of the e, Employee and Labor Relations Manual by other arbitrators. In case number there, an arbitrator found that a agreement who had failed to detect an overpayment resulting from a clerical error for nearly a year was at fault and was not entitled to a waiver. <clears throat> the arbitrator determined that because the agreement in that particular case had himself bid to a lower level, he should have been aware of the lack of change in his paycheck. The arbitrator recognized, however, that there might have been evidence to explain or justify why the grievant did not have knowledge that would have absolved him from fault in the case. Lacking such information, the arbitrator ruled against the grievant. In this particular case, there exist factors which explain and justify the grievance's actions. The grievant reasonably concluded that his pay would remain at level 6 until he received a form 50 indicating a change in his pay to level 5. On discovering the area, the grievant immediately discussed the matter with the supervisor. He received assurances that the matter would be resolved promptly. He acted in good faith and reasonably, given the degree of his sophistication and understanding of the circumstances. Having carefully considered all evidence submitted by the parties concerning this matter, the arbitrator concludes that the employer violated Article 20 of the party's collective bargaining agreement by withholding the claim for overpay- overcompensation from the grievance's paychecks as well as Article 19 of the party's collective bargaining agreement when it denied the grievance request for a waiver. The employer is required to refund the agreement any and all monies withheld from his paychecks with regard to the employer's claim for erroneous overpayment. The employer also shall grant the agreement a waiver of its claim for overcompensation consistent with the findings in this report. And he retained jurisdiction. So there's some good Elm language to you. I told you this is boring shit. Got two more, though. We're going to keep going. So there's just some good Elm language there. Also gave you some good law language, okay? So you already know more than you did when you started this thing, right? Most of you. Some of y'all are probably well-versed in it. but Next one is C33427. C33427, uh, Arbitrator Barrett. Yes, it's from 2018. I'm going to read his Finding an Opinion. This is some great language, too. This is one of my favorites. The matter before me presents some elements of suspense, intrigue, and mystery. So this arbitrator is going to have fun with it, right? The matter before me presents some elements of suspense, intrigue, and mystery. A longtime employee claims an injury in 2015. and Without dispute, files a claim with the Department of Labor's Office of Workman's Comp that is denied in a letter dated February 9th of 2015. The agreement claims that the first time he has been seen this letter is at the arbitration hearing and the union concurs. Adding to this mystery is the statement in the subject letter that offers, on 1-7-2015, this office advised you of the deficiencies in your claim and provided you the opportunity to submit additional evidence. In reading this letter, it appears that the agreement did receive such a notice to supplement his claim and responded to it by providing VA work restrictions report, USPS offer of modified assignment, and A, statement from you to change the election of pay to COP instead of annual sick leave. The agreement claims that he continued to provide medical documentation to his supervisor, Mr. Patrick Dickey, who assured him that the CA-1 and medical documentation would be filed with OWCP. The record did not provide a statement for Mr. Dickey, and he did not offer hearing testimony. The service maintains, and the grieving acknowledges, that the address noted on the February 9, 2015 OWCP letter is his home address still and that there is every reason to believe that the subject mail piece was delivered to this address. This arbitrator likely more than many believes in the efficiency of the U.S. Postal Service. However, in matters such as that before me, my faith alone cannot suffice. Much of the service's argument in support of their position starts with this February 9, 2015 notice to the agreement. It was allowed at hearing in their efforts to impeach the agreement's testimony more than the introduction of M1 later. However, the agreement states under oath that he did not receive this notice in 2015 and only became aware of it at the hearing. This letter bears no irrefutable evidence of delivery. It appears not to have been sent certified mail where a signature is required or proof of delivery requested. The only markings on this letter is the date stamp of receipt by the HRH Cincinnati District and one other unrecognizable office's data stamp dated February 18, 2015. While it seems likely that this method of governmental delivery is normal, this arbitrator does not seek proof of delivery of his awards if it remains even remotely possible that this important letter dated February 9, 2015 from the OWCP was not delivered to the grievance and, as stated, there is no proof of delivery than one cannot attribute to the grievant his failure to respond to it and also to be completely aware of the stated reasons for his denial of claim. I am left with sworn testimony from the grievant that he did not receive this letter, no irrefutable evidence that it was delivered, and no offer of contract- contradictory testimony by the service that the grievant continued to provide medical information to his supervisor, believing that his claim was being addressed timely and appropriately and timely is an operative word as it relates to this grievance. As stated above, the service greatly relies upon the February 9, 2015 OWCP letter to support their position that the grievance was aware of his failure to provide acceptable documentation to the Department of Labor in support of his claim elected to take continuation of pay and through this letter was fully aware of the reasons for the issuance of the subject letter of demand because his claim had been denied. However, as I have stated in My faith in the delivery of the mails, while nearly absolute must, in matters such as these, be supported by evidence of actual proof of delivery, and that is lacking. The only evidence before me of receipt of this February 9, 2015 letter is by the HRM office, and this fact leads to another arbitrable concern. The agreement and union both offered at hearing that this letter, M1, was viewed by them for the first time at arbitration that the union has sought all information related to the reasons for the subject September 11, 2017, letter of demand, and that management had failed to provide any response, including providing the union with a copy of M1. The record is replete with such requests. <clears throat> in response to the formal Step A management representative's request for something in writing, the manager of the HRM office stated that he could only give you a statement that we have documentation from the DOL that the claim is denied. At hearing the manager, Mr. Logan stated that there is a process by which information such as this can be released, that Privacy Act laws prevent providing such information to labor organizations. However, this refusal to provide the union and his own management representative with a copy of the February 9, 2015 OBWCP letter that does fully explain the grievance denial of claim and gives reason for the subject letter demand completely ignores the union's right and the grievance to such information. While one can appreciate the manager's reliance upon FICA and privacy statutes, such statutes do not conflict with the union's right to all relevant information which they deem necessary to pursue a grievance or better understand if agreements may exist. Further, to deny this document, during the grievance procedure, and then produce it at the hearing, even if an attempt to impeach a witness completely dilutes the manager's assertion that it is protected information deserving of a particular process to acquire it. This document was not medical information in the same sense as the held by an occupational health nurse, where there is a recognized procedure for acquiring such privileged and protected information. To deny the union this information upon their request, pursuant to their contractual rights to information, is to deny the agreement his right to due process and the union's right to fully represent him. You like this one? I love this this here where he's getting in their ass. By denying this information throughout the grievance procedure, we are left with only the with the august twenty first, twenty seventeen statement and the september twenty seventeen letter of demand in our determination as to whether it meets the demands of Article twenty eight and the M four hundred fifty two. There you go, some four hundred fifty two. The statement offers only that the agreement owes $932.35 and the September 8, 2017 letter of demand states that the sum is based on payroll-related debt. The invoice, dated August 9, 2017, does state, in relevant part, that it is to collect continuation of pay 7.52 hours from week one and 25.45 hours from week two pay period 4, 2015. Also, 11 hours cop was changed to annual leave. This invoice directs questioning concerning it to your supervisor. However, as offered in the record before me, the supervisor stated that the invoice explains why his claim was denied and money owed. While one may conclude that by listing the relevant pay periods on the August 9, 2017 invoice, the grievance should have reasonably been expected to know it had something to do with his 2015 claim for injury that alone does not satisfy the requirements of Article 28 or the M. And that's how most of you alls are going to read is what I just read you. He just read what most of y'all's letter demands are going to read. OK, and he's ruling in our favor right here. As previously stated by numerous arbitrators, Article 28 states in relevant part, in advance of any money demand upon an employee for any reason, The employee must be informed in writing, and the demand must include the reasons therefor. Further, management's contention cites the ELM 452-322, which states in relevant part, the notice must notify the employee of the nature of the debt. I cannot find this inclusion of pay periods in the letter of demand to meet such an obligation as cited by Article 28 and this ELM citation. While counsel for the service has done an exemplary job at adhering, neither the statement nor the invoice can reasonably be viewed as providing a reason for the debt or the actual nature of the debt, and absent the February 2015 notice, there is no sufficient reason given. While the service is right and obligated to pursue monies owed them by employees, that obligation remains intertwined with a contractual obligation to pursue such debt in accordance with established principles and practices an affair to do so, no matter the legitimacy of the reasons or amount of such a debt, will likely result in dismissing such a debt. Procedural obligations, if not enforced by the service and or the union, will most always trump other failures associated with the matter, be it judicial, legal, or arbitral. Another mystery before me as it regards the February 2015 OWCP letter is, is the timeliness associated between this notice and the issuance of the subject letter of demand in August-September 2017. There is no dispute before me that the HRM office had the original denial by OWCP on February 8, 2015, yet a letter of demand was not issued for nearly 31 months after. Management noted that HR discovered the claim denial and then sent the letter of demand but does not offer any explanation for the two-year void when it is obvious that HRM in the least had possession of the denial by OWCP was set in motion, albeit two years plus later, the letter of demand. No further explanation for such a time frame between the FIT 2015 notice and the 2017 letter of demand is found by the arbitrator in the case or at hearing. In law and arbitration a waiver known as acquiescence may result from one party's failure to act towards the other in a reasonable period of time he's fixing to get into some good shit right here the grievance testifies that during the two-year period from his filing of the injury claim to the receipt of the subject letter of demand he was of the impression that no issue existed and there is no dispute that during the two-year period, the service undertook no action whatsoever related to their own claim denial. Clearly, the service is aware of the grievance claim denial as evidenced by Manager Logan's testimony and the receipt of M1 in February 2015, but for no, reason, for no known reason did not discover it for two years, thus contributing even the least toward the grievance perception that no issue existed with his claim until August 2017. This inaction, however unintended, offers tacit consent towards the payment to the agreement of the subject sum of monies. It has been previously stated that that where it may be the employer's mistake of judgment when having full knowledge of all the facts, it is unlikely that recoupment will be permitted. As stated in El Cori, acquiescence is a failure of a person for an unreasonable length of time to act upon rights of which the person has full knowledge. This same waiver applies equally to the service, the union, and the employee. Further, the doctrine of latches is based upon the theory that equity aids the vigilant and not those who slumber on their rights. Read that again. Further, the doctrine of latches is based upon the theory that equity aids the vigilant and not those who slumber on their rights as well as defining latches as the neglect for an unreasonable and unexplained length of time under circumstances permitting diligence to do what in law should have been done. I simply cannot find before me justification for the delay in issuing the subject letter demand after such a length of time when the service without dispute had the information in their possession with which they could have and most likely should have issued the subject letter demand. At the least, the agreement and the union would have been in a far better position to respond to a timely letter of demand and the service more likely to prevail if all else been equal. Further, the parties likely would have both been in far better position to articulate their respective positions long before arbitration if only management had responded appropriately to the union's request for information instead of taking the singular position that the agreement had to know the reason for the letter of demand and was only attempting to avoid paying the sum demanded. Assumptions are not facts, and in the final analysis, it was likely a disservice to both parties to make such assumptions. The service has a contractual obligation pursuant to Articles 19 and 28 to provide the employee with a reason for the letter of demand. A reference to pay periods two years prior may seem obvious, but simply does not satisfy those obligations. There is ample precedent for this position as provided by the union's very articulate counsel and more known to arbitrators. That failure alone would give cause to sustain this grievance, but when one considers the failure to provide information requested by the union and the unreasonable and unknown cause for the delay in issuing the subject letter demand to the agreement, I simply cannot but sustain this grievance in total. And so that's a great one for the information, and I love that language. I love that latches argument for those that have discipline dealing with uh, an extended period of time. We had one the other day where management says, hey, if it doesn't show that there's any harm done to the letter carrier, it doesn't matter how long uh, the discipline takes to be issued. And this arbitration decision here would go perfect with discipline, even though it's a contract case, because he talks about the doctrine of latches. There's no explanation as to why he took so long. And Article 16 is clear. It says after the offense is committed. And so that's just another something for you. But I love that language in that one because that's a good crossover if you're dealing with discipline. Lastly, and thank godly, it's uh, Roberta Bayhackle. C34086, C34086, Roberta Bayhackle, And I do believe that reading, even though I hate it, I hate its guts, uh, reading, that when you do read three or four decisions, y'all are starting to understand where arbitrators look, management's arguments, letters of demands that you receive, what we're going to look for in them, issue statements. All these have good issue statements. They're all the same, but it will help you with issue statements. Uh, This one is, did management violate Article 19 and 20 of the National Agreement by issuing uh, Dixon a letter of demand? Bargaining union employees dated June 28, 2018, and the amount of $7,494. And so all of these have the same issue statement. Okay, so that's very good for you for that. But this is Roberta Bayackle c three four zero eight six three four zero eight six, 34086. And a very brief discussion, but it's very good. Uh, <clears throat> not my favorite arbitrator by any means, but this is a good decision. I have reviewed the testimony and evidence presented at the hearing considered the written closing submitted by the parties, the last of which was received on June 7, 2019. No argument has been raised regarding the arbitrability of this matter. Therefore, it is properly before me for a decision. The Union contends that the agreement should not be held responsible for the damage to the Postal Service's gate and that the letter of demand for $7,494.16 should be set aside. The union argues that the provisions of Article 28 only hold an employee financially responsible for loss or damage to postal property in cases where the damage result of willful or deliberate misconduct by the employee, and in this case, the grievance actions did not rise to that level. Now, I have a lot of people telling me that management is attempting to issue letter demands for express mail failures. I dealt with that years ago. For vehicle accidents, for accidents inside the postal uh, facility. A lot of people have been reaching out with those, so here you go. Here's a great site for that. I'll read that one part again. The union argues that the provisions of Article 8 only hold an employee financially responsible for loss or damage to postal property in cases where the damage was the result of willful or deliberate misconduct by the employee, and in this case, the grievance actions did not rise to that level. The union contends that the agreement was leaving work like any other day, and when he saw that the gate was open, he drove on through. The union argues that the evidence showed that the gate closed on the rear portion of the grievance truck and there was no evidence that the gate was beginning to close before the grievance drove through. There was nothing willful or deliberate about his actions that would support the issuance of a letter of demand on Article 28. Management contends that the grievance actions were willful and deliberate in that he failed to stop at the gate before exiting and that he speedily drove through the gate. Management contends that it is likely that the gate was already beginning to close and that the grievance tried to beat the gate, but it struck his truck before he was all the way through the opening. Management also contends that if the grievance was not at fault, then he would have reported the incident immediately after it happened instead of leaving the scene and never reporting the incident. The testimony and evidence presented at the hearing showed only that the grievance truck was struck by the gate as he was going through. The video of the gate area played at the hearing does not show the gate and its movements or give any indication as to whether the gate had started to close before the grievance began to drive through it. There is also nothing that shows the gate actually hitting the grievance vehicle. All that is visible on the video is that the grievance driving through the gate without stopping. Article 28 sets out the party's agreement that an employee will be liable for damage to postal service property only when the employee's actions are the result of willful or deliberate misconduct management argues that the fact that the agreement did not one stop at the gate and two report the incident to management infers willful or deliberate misconduct on his part thereby causing him to be responsible for the cost of the repair replacement of the gate while the union argues that driving through an open gate is not sufficient to meet the willful and deliberate misconduct provisions of article 28. The party submitted citations from previous arbitrations where the language of Article 28, Section 3 was discussed and interpreted. Arbitrator William Zumas explained that interpretation of the phrase, willful or deliberate misconduct, as it applies to Article 28, 3 of more than 30 years ago, he stated, "...a willful or deliberate act is commonly defined as one that is done intentionally, knowingly, and purposefully, without justifiable excuse." This is distinguished from an act that is done carelessly, heedlessly, or inadvertently. And that is fantastic language for y'all. I'm going to read that again. This is from William Zumas. She cites it in here. And in his interpretation of the phrase, willful or deliberate misconduct, this is what he says. A willful or deliberate act is commonly defined as one that is done intentionally, knowingly, and purposefully, without justifiable excuse, this is distinguished from an act that is done carelessly, need, heedlessly, or inadvertently. Arbitrator Stephen Wolf opined in 2002 that the standard of willful and deliberate misconduct has been frequently addressed in arbitration. These cases, in the main, find that committing of a negligent act that causes damage plainly does not, without more, trigger Article 28, Section 3. The act that caused the damage must have been shown to be so unreasonable as to go by simple negligence. And that's fantastic language. Willful and deliberate misconduct falls under the umbrella of negligence. Generally, negligence can be divided into subcategories with ascending levels of culpability. Ordinary negligence, gross negligence, and willful, wanton, or reckless conduct. Ordinary negligence is often referred to as the reasonable person standard which requires individuals to conduct themselves as a reasonably careful person would under like circumstances. Ordinary negligence occurs when somebody does something that a reasonably careful person would not do under similar circumstances or fails to do something a reasonably careful person would do. Gross negligence requires conduct substantially higher in magnitude than ordinary negligence. It can be defined as a heedless violation of the rights of others amounting to indifference or carelessness so far as the rights of others are concerned. The third type of negligence, willful, wanton, or reckless conduct, is just a shade below actual intent or deliberate behavior. Establish that an action is willful, wanton, or reckless involves showing with a high degree of likelihood that substantial harm will result to another. In my determination, two things distinguish willful, wanton, or reckless conduct from ordinary or gross negligence. First, the individual must knowingly or intentionally disregard an unreasonable risk, and second, the risk must entail a high degree of probability that it will cause substantial harm. The parties in Article 28 set the standard of willful and deliberate misconduct as the determining factor in whether an employee shall but be financially liable for any loss or damage to property of the employee. The burden is on management to show that the grievance actions meet that standard when it seeks to collect for damages to its property. The evidence presented at the hearing establishes only that the grievance did not stop before passing through the gate. The grievance testified that he did not stop at the gate because it was open when he arrived. While management contends that the grievance saw the gate begin to close and was trying to beat the gate, no evidence was submitted to support this contention. Nor is there evidence presented to indicate that the grievance speed was greater than any other of the vehicles shown on the video. The photos of the damage to the grievance truck established the grievance vehicle had almost completely passed through the gate before it was struck. Management argues that the grievance failure to stop and report the accident is evidence of his guilt in attempting to beat the gate. Without other evidence to corroborate, management's contentions, is there is insufficient evidence to infer the grievance's guilt or to establish the grievance actions constituted willful or deliberate misconduct as opposed to mere negligence. After reviewing the evidence presented, it is my determination that management was not able to show the grievance actions rose to the level willful or deliberate misconduct as set out in Article 28.3. So there's four great sites. That's a fantastic site, even though I can't stand that arbitrator. That's a fantastic site where she breaks down willful, wanton, reckless. Uh, That is a fantastic site if any of you are dealing with that uh, with management's letters of demands. So there's four sites that I just read. (laughs) Y'all could tell my tongue was getting tired. I need to give it more practice. But uh, there's your letter of demand. Uh, Those four sites will be up on uh, Formate Arbitration. Get those and read those for yourself. Uh, If you knew nothing about letter of demands before you listen to this episode, now you do. Now you know where to find it. Now you know how to fight it. Now you know an issue statement. Now you know how certain arbitrators define certain things. You've got Elm language that you may not have known about. Uh, And so there you have it. Letters of Demands. (laughs) Next week, if JB's not on, I'll go to the second on the list. And I don't know what that is. have to look it up. But y'all have a fantastic rest of the week. That's an hour and 32 minutes. (laughs) Damn. But um, y'all have a fantastic rest of the week. I'm going to take the week off. i got to answer a lot of emails that y'all sent, a lot of uh, Facebook messages y'all sent. And uh, I'll get back to that this week. Like I said last week, I took it off because I had two arbitrations, and nothing's more important than that, okay? Uh, Reddit, get on Reddit. That place is booming right now, booming. Uh, I can't remember how many they said it was, 1,200 or 1,500 have gotten onto Reddit now. A lot of great conversation. A lot of funny stuff is going on on Reddit. And you also have Discord. That's booming. They're up at all hours of the night. I get up to go to the restroom and I'll check it like 2. They're still going at it at 2 a.m. And so get on Reddit. Great stuff. I have an individual that's going to start getting my snippets off of the episodes. And he's going to put it up on TikTok. And I'll tell you more about that later. Uh, he thinks it's going to make some money and he's going to contribute all that to uh, MDA. Okay. All that, all those uh, monies he gets off of that will go to MDA. But he's going to start making a TikTok from Aid Arbitration TikTok page with some of the snippets of the things that I say. That should be interesting. Uh, it's going to be on that. So I'll let you know more about that later. He reached out and asked if I minded the other day. I don't care what y'all do, man, as long as y'all have fun with it and educate. All right. Uh, the shirts we're doing really, really, really good with the shirts. It's astonishing uh, how well the shirts are. If you have uh, ideas or suggestions, email uh, admin at formatearbitration.com. Get on the formatearbitration.com page. Email Jeremy. He handles all of that. I don't handle any part of that whatsoever. He handles the monies. He handles the shirts, the recommendation for shirts. Had a young lady reach out the other day and say, hey, you don't have anything for the females. And so he's going to get that taken care of. And um, anything you want written on them, give it to him and he'll have it written for you. And so those things are going really, really good. And that's fantastic because I'm going to love getting a good check to MDA off of that. Uh, so a lot of great stuff going on with formatearbitration.com. It's all because of y'all, y'all wanting to learn. and uh, And I'm here to teach you as much as I know. All right. So y'all have a fantastic rest of the week. I will talk to y'all next Sunday. And uh, there's your letter of demand. I'll talk to you later. All right. Bye.